0: Hello and welcome to the Being Well podcast, I'm Forrest Hansen. Whether at home or at work, it's easy to spend more time dwelling on the faults of others than reflecting on the room for improvement in oneself. But waiting for others to change first creates deadlocks, vicious cycles, and a sense of helplessness. The alternative is unilateral virtue, the focus of our episode today. Unilateral virtue occurs when we draw on autonomy, empathy, compassion, and kindness to be honorable and responsible even when others aren't. Unilateral virtue sounds great in theory but can be a real challenge in practice. So, to help us develop this critical skill for relationships, I'm joined today by Dr. Rick Hanson. So, how are you doing today? I'm good. This is one of my absolute favorite topics. Yeah, great. I've been looking forward to talking about unilateral virtue with you because same thing for me. I think it's one of those things that's obvious when you say it and it's profoundly important, but there's a lot of complexity that's kind of hidden under the hood of the car, so to speak. Yeah. It's one thing to kind of say, like, sure, just be nice to people and take total responsibility, and it's (laughs) quite another to really do that in practice. So to kind of frame the conversation, my understanding is that unilateral virtue basically comes from your experience working with couples. Is that more or less correct?
1: Yeah, I would see these couples come in, Mm -hmm. A and B, Mm -hmm. and A would have a complaint about B, and B would have a complaint about A, Mm -hmm. of one kind or another. And then it would become a deadlock in which essentially A would say to B, you need to change. B would say to A, Well, you need to change. Sure. And then A would say, Essentially, okay, I'll change, but you first. Mm, mm-hmm. And then they would just grind to a halt. And mm. I started realizing that both for them and myself, frankly, in many, many different kinds of relationships, the way to break out of that deadlock was to operate by what could be called in the same thing in other ways mm-hmm. the 80 20 rule. All right. Put 20% of your focus on how they could be a better fill-in-the-blank. Partner, friend, colleague, teacher, child, all right, fine. But what about the other 80%? Clean up your own side of the street, people in glass houses, should not throw stones, et cetera, et cetera. So that was the genesis of it all. And for me, part of what made it transformative, honestly, Forrest, was shifting out of the notion that if I responded to the complaints of others, that was them beating me, or I was mm. losing, mm-hmm. knuckling under, or yeah. being dominated by them. And the real reframe of this was to realize that the most self-interested, strongest, mm. most skillful, best odds play I could make would be to focus on cleaning up my own side of the street. I was doing it for me. Sure, I was doing it for them. but doing it was the best way to take good care of myself.
0: Mm. I think that's really well said. For me, that script that you pointed to in the beginning, the sort of I'll do something for you if you do something for me, it really moves the nature of our relationships towards this feeling of kind of value exchanges of various Mm. kinds. Right. You know, just sort of a stance of the only reason that I'm doing something good for you is because you're doing something good for me. Yeah, And that long-term
1: becomes very fundamentally problematic. Well, that's a very interesting question, Mm -hmm. Um, because flip the other way, I've seen people in adult relationships who are in kind of illusion that at bottom, adult relationships really are primarily rested on forms of reciprocity. In other words, with a child, if you have a duty to a child, or let's say to somebody else, no matter what you get from the relationship, you have a duty to that person, Mm -hmm. whatever it might be. But in long-term adult relationships, we need to get as well as to give. Mm-hmm. So one way also to think about this unilateral virtue topic is that it's not uh, forever necessarily with a certain person. What I mean by that is not that a unilateral virtue has some kind of half-life, and if they don't shape up, then you can just go back and be a mean and nasty and horrible person. No, it's more like that as you operate yourself, Mm -hmm. by doing your share of the work, holding up your end of the log, being appropriate in relationships, being unobjectionable yourself. Uh, As you do that, you're going to watch and see what they do. Mm -hmm. And if after some reasonable, depends on the person what's reasonable, but after some reasonable amount of time, a few weeks in a row, let's say, maybe a month or two, uh, if after you operate with unilateral virtue and you really start to observe that other people are unwilling to shift themselves, especially after you ask them to shift themselves, then, well, you reserve your rights Mm -hmm. long-term. And since you've been willing to operate with unilateral virtue, when you do exercise the rights you've reserved, you then tend to feel more confident about that and more entitled in a healthy sense to exercising your rights as you see fit.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's that's really well said. To maybe clarify a little bit, I think that in general, in our relationships, things work more smoothly mm. when we operate from a stance of not I'm doing y for you because I want X, but because right. I want to give you y right. And to trust fundamentally true. that the other person will naturally respond positively yeah. by giving us back X. But I think the point you're making about the kind of um, that the natural exchange economy of a relationship is really fair and really deeply true that ultimately, we have to get something in order to
1: continue giving something long term. Yeah, this is really useful for us. You're 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 naming in a sense time frames. Yeah, sure. And I think that really helps mm-hmm. because if our expectation is, well, I was nice to you and you weren't nice to me immediately, sure. We're gonna tend to be upset. Mm. But on the other hand, if we think, you know, I've been a good guy here for multiple interactions in a row, well, over that larger time frame, you betcha. I'm going to kind of see what's happening over there. And I do have an expectation Mm -hmm. that if I'm going to sustain good treatment of you,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I'm hoping for and feel frankly entitled to good treatment in return. And if I don't get that good treatment over time, well, I'm reserving my rights.
0: Yeah. Long-term, I think it makes total sense to do something we've talked about in the podcast in the past, which is that idea of scaling the relationship to the size of its reliable foundation. And I think that that um, that framework yeah, is a really useful way to speak to the common critique yeah. of unilateral virtue, which yeah. you've kind of given already so far, mm-hmm. which is this idea that you'll be a doormat if you're nice to other people yeah, and that they'll just kind of step all over you. It's like, well, there's a reasonable limitation on all of those things, which is what you're speaking to so far.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like lighten up about the short-term mm, sure. returns to you mm-hmm. from other people and get serious and get on your own side about the long-term returns to you from other people.
0: Mm -hmm. So in that framework, kind of simply put, what if you're in a situation where you feel like you have been acting with unilateral virtue and someone else hasn't? How can you identify that? Do you have any thoughts or suggestions for exiting from that kind of a situation? Ways to scale that foundation, anything along those lines? That's
1: a big one. Let's, Let's use a couple of examples. So one is around keeping agreements, mm-hmm. and I don't mean that uh, our more informal relationships with friends and lovers and families should start looking like a seventeen page contract <laughs> uh, such as written by the lawyer for a New York publisher. and I've been on the receiving end of those kind of contracts. Uh, mm-hmm. we don't that's not what I'm saying on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, as we've talked here, the foundation of relationships is trust. And the foundation of trust is reliability. Mm. And the foundation of reliability is fulfilling uh, implicit or explicit agreements in reasonable ways with each other. So it's really very, very fundamental. And if you expect something from someone uh, and they don't deliver on that, that's kind of a yellow flag. And it relates as well to the ways that the brain is fundamentally operating as an expectation generating and evaluating machine. So much of what we do, including in the, simple, the simplest form of motor acts, we, we reach for a cup and we expect that it weighs a certain amount. Mm. And then we send signals to our motor systems, let's say in our arms, to exert a certain amount of force to lift the cup from the table based on our expectation of whether it's full or empty. And you know what it's like when you expect that a cup is full and you exert a lot of force to lift it, but in fact, it's only about a quarter full. We're constantly doing that. And we're constantly doing it as well in our relationships. Here too, we have this general principle, the evolution of the brain, that more sophisticated functions like relationship functions are laid on top of simpler and therefore in evolutionary time, more ancient sensory motor systems, such as Perception, expectation, and reperception. Mm, All right. So it's a big deal to have your expectations violated, uh, and especially agreements that are explicit, uh, not kept by other people. Then the question is, what happens next? Mm -hmm. Because we're going to continually do stuff with other people. Can we be counted on to repair and to recreate a framework of trust and therefore agreement that 's mm-hmm. the key question mm-hmm. so let's suppose that in a relationship, you are trying to form clear agreements with people that you depend on, including people that you're a roommate with or that you work with or that you're lovers with or married to you're you depend upon them and so first one is what do you do when you are willing to operate with the unilateral virtue of a good faith effort to make and keep Clear, appropriate agreements, and the other person isn't. I think that it really is useful to flag early on norm violations, expectation violations, broken agreements, and not to just let it sail by because then it becomes the new normal. Mm -hmm. And if you countenance it, it sends a signal to the other person that it's fine. So I think it's important to speak up kind of early on Mm -hmm. uh, or to flag it. Then, second, when you've flagged it, study it. Was there actually an agreement? Is this tone really that bad? Uh, Was it a one-off or was it a big deal? You kind of want to see what's going on. Could you have been more clear? For example, reestablish the understanding that they'll remove their stuff from the office refrigerator within a week. The understanding that they're going to pick up the kids at a certain regular time, you know, double check it. And then in my experience, much of the time it goes okay. The effort to reestablish clarity is noticed often by other people. Mm -hmm. And it's a kind of polite way, without making a big fuss about it, to signal something happened here. Let's reboot here. Let's get back on a solid footing. Then we'll go forward. And the other person often knows it, and a light touch can get the job done much of the time. On the other hand, if you go through that process and other people Really, really will not operate with you in a way in which they can be trusted to keep important agreements or to take them seriously. They can't be trusted to really receive your statement of how you experience their impact on you. Then that is a big orange flag, if not Mm. a red one. Mm -hmm. And there's a particular case here. Thanks for letting me rattle on because this is a lot of experience of couples counseling summarized. There's a particular case where A and B, a wants something from B. So for A, when B uh gets louder than on the sort of 10 scale of five, in like in terms of being angry, or if B doesn't really appreciate the fact that it's scary for A to go visit B's relatives with B or something. So there's a case often where A would like something from B and sincerely b doesn't get it or b doesn't think it's that important or b doesn't think that uh it's necessary for a good long happy relationship etc here's the choice point though b can give it to a just because it matters to a now b may decide not to give it to a okay but there's a place here where a Doesn't have to necessarily make the argument to be that what I want from you is self evidently important and natural and a universal value, which then usually ends up in a big argument. What A can basically say to B is I get it. I'm not trying to make you agree with me that this is some sort of universal standard that everybody should meet. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to get you to, uh, to agree with me that because I just don't think it that you've been bad. Uh For not giving it to me, no those are side issues. Those are not really relevant here. What is relevant here is I just want to know if essentially I matter enough to you that this particular thing you would just take a breath and do for me. mm-hmm, now obviously, there's a potential pitfall there about you know a guilt tripping b. Oh, if you only mattered enough to me, you would do da 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 da. you got to be careful about this one. This is a card you don't want to be playing every day but using it gives a kind of freedom or Mm -hmm. movement in the relationship that A doesn't need to persuade B that something is inherently important. All A needs to get from B is B, uh, maybe with kind of a few raised eyebrows, but whatever, uh, goes forward and just gives it to A. Yeah,
0: I think that's a great summary
1: of a lot of material. So... Within the context of unilateral
0: virtue, it seems like one of the things that you were kind of insinuating towards the end there is part of what makes it tricky is that it's going to be different for everyone. My version of unilateral virtue may not be your version of unilateral Mm. virtue. Different Mm. people have different things that they care about and value and find important. So inside of that context, in order for us to kind of live unilaterally, for lack of a better way of putting it, we have to sort of figure out what our code of conduct is Mm. that we're abiding by. Yeah. So what are some ways or some processes that people can go through
1: to identify that for themselves? One category is what you personally consider to be in integrity for yourself. Mm. So it has a bit of a moral edge to it. So things like not hitting seems like an easy one. It's unfortunately not an easy one in many relationships. Mm. A lot of old-fashioned virtues show up here. I want to keep my word. I want my word to be good. I want to generally practice the golden rule. You know, I want to relate to other people as thou's to my I, in terms of Martin Buber's formulation of three kinds of relationships I thou, I it, and it it, which I believe we've talked about before. Mm-hmm. So a lot of this is really not rocket science. We know in our heart much of how we want to be, and we don't yeah. need to know all of how we want to be mm-hmm. to identify and then. Live from most of what we know we want to be, mm, and mm-hmm. and you know, pluck the low hanging fruit and pin it down deep inside ourselves. Uh, what makes you squirm? What makes you feel like eh, when you rewound what really happened, you just feel bad about yourself? You like you really wish you hadn't done it. That's pretty straightforward. So that's a whole category right there. Uh, let's call it the moral category. And then I think there's a second category where. It's about skillfulness mm, mm-hmm. in which you, which I find enormously interesting and rewarding and, and positive and hopeful, you uh, are always interested in getting better mm. without getting hard in yourself for how you're not there yet and not getting caught up in the future, but in ways that are useful, explore, well, how can I go to bed tonight, a slightly more skillful spouse than when I woke up in the morning, a slightly more skillful parent? or boss or therapist, and then you get interested in that. And that too then becomes your own internal game. Uh, we've talked a bit about redefining the game into one you can win at. So mm-hmm. in the hypothetical playing tennis with someone who's really better than you, maybe all you can do is get slightly better at your, ha- at your backhand by the end of the match. And that's what you do. And so you've won at that game, the one you you know defined yourself. So those are the two categories I think. One's sort of a moral one, the other's more of a skillfulness one. But either way, uh your focus is on uh your own game, mm-hmm. your own behavior, your own performance. And sure you want them to do what you want them to do, you'd like them to rise, but your primary focus is on yourself. There's an
0: element of this that I think is really important which is the idea of making implicit things explicit. Mm. I think there's a real power in that. It's easy for us to say kind of in a general out there sort of way, oh, it's important for me not to interrupt other people. I would say that most people would say that if you ask them, is it important to you to not interrupt other people? They would say, yes, it is very important to me. But then you actually talk with other people Mm -hmm. in a conversation and you find yourself getting interrupted almost all of the time. People Mm -hmm. interrupt constantly. So... Once we move from this kind of ephemeral sense of, oh, yeah, here are these general things that I think are generally good, to making a real commitment in one way or another to actually practicing these things in the real world, doing that, that implicit to explicit practice, I think has a real power. Yeah, And so it's why I would sort of recommend to people something that's useful for me in this framework of unilateral virtue. Is writing down the things that really matter for you, yeah. like take a piece of paper and write down, here are my five things that yep. I'm going to try to not do or to do the next yeah. time that I'm having an interaction with a difficult person. Yeah. And my commitment is going to be to stick to those five things and to just make it really simple.
1: Yeah. I'm thinking of, for example, completing a sentence. It's a nice method. Mm. And so you take you pick a stem such as, uh, things are going to go better in my relationship with my, let's say, girlfriend or boyfriend, partner, things are going to go, things will go better with my partner when I blank and then fill it in, fill it in, fill it in. Or as a father, I want to fill it in.
0: No, I think that's a great practice. And we're kind of creeping up on the new year, you know, slowly but surely, which is obviously the kind of time for those sorts of resolutions, but you can really do them whenever. And one sort of version of that that I found really helpful just recently is I kind of wrote down a list of um, those sort of stem sentences uh-huh. where I wrote down, I am happy when I blank, mm-hmm. or I am sad when I blank, yeah, or I am fulfilled when I'm blank. And then just kind of decide what's in the blanks for you. And that can be a really good way to sort of find your own uh, framework for this sort of unilateral virtue. So yeah. with that as a context, um, we've established our right. ephemeral sense of unilateral virtue, our own code. What are some of the things that we can do to stick with it over time? Mm. Because, you know, it's really easy to go to the gym for a day and it's yeah. really hard to go to the gym, you know, every other day for a year mm. or to kind of
1: recommit to it when we sort of fall off the wagon. There's a recurring theme looking back on these podcasts. and mm-hmm. It's been so great for us to talk with you about this stuff and get mm. your take about it as well. The recurring theme is to exercise what in psychology has a very fancy term, internal locus of control. Mm-hmm. And this has to do with this powerful theme, which has a ton of research related to it, about the distinction between locating the causes in your life outside yourself or inside yourself.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, a different way of saying more or less the same thing, do you feel at effect or do you feel at cause? Mm-hmm. Or using the language of what's called object relations, a kind of spin-off branch or aspect of psychodynamic theory. Are you object-referenced in the sense of, are you really constrained by and bound to the quote-unquote objects in your life, the other people, or uh, more abstract things like classes of people, men as a class of people, uh, children as a class of people? Are you caught up with that? Are you dependent upon, or are you object-referenced, or are you, in in the general sense of the word self, are you self-directed? So these are just different ways of saying that there's a very profound process, I think, in which we claim two seemingly opposite poles or Mm -hmm. positions. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: On the one hand, uh, we recognize the ways in which we are a local expression of a vast sea of causes, and that we're part of a great net of other of people and the world and nature, blah, blah, okay? There's also the truth of independence, of really claiming autonomy, like we've talked recently, and focusing in relationships in terms of what's my responsibility, what's my agency, how can I create effects here, how can I make things better, rather than just complaining about how they need to make things better. It's a profound process, actually, to, in effect, reclaim your own power, and part of reclaiming that power means reclaiming your responsibility for how things go in your relationships. That's a very deep thing, and I think if if people are committed to that, if that's an ongoing process, and if that's a distinction that really is alive in the mind of someone between being inner-directed and other-directed or mm-hmm. other-referenced, then uh, unilateral virtue tends to naturally follow because Mm -hmm. it's unilateral. Uh, That's the origin point of unilateral virtue. Mm -hmm. In any case, uh, knowing what your rules are, knowing what your do's and don'ts are, really is really helpful, uh, especially when you're upset. It's easy to exercise unilateral virtue when everything's going your way. But when you're in the condition known as HALT in Alcoholics Anonymous, Mm -hmm. H-A-L-T, hungry, uh, angry, lonely, tired. That's when, you, that's when you need to halt. In other words, so it, it really helps to have these laid out as almost rules for yourself or precepts you take. People can take precepts. It's really powerful to summarize your list of you know, of unilateral virtues uh, and recommit to them every day. I know people who do that, uh, including in a religious framework. That too can be really, really powerful.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that's a great broad framework for commitments to unilateral virtue. To add some sort of specific, maybe more granular things inside of that framework, one of the themes in what you're saying here is to make sure that your state is positive before wandering into a potentially challenging situation with somebody else. Mm. So however that means that you're going to be filling your own cup, whether that means you're taking a nap or you're getting something to eat, or you're looking out for your own needs. Or you are checking in with yourself psycho-emotionally and making sure that you're in a state where you're capable of acting from unilateral virtue. I think that's a really important first step. So fill your own cup. Then kind of more interpersonally, I think that what you see a lot, what you might call irritation leak,
1: mm-hmm.
0: when we feel, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> where where we feel like we've really been killing it. and. When we feel like we've been doing really great for an extended period of time, and other people aren't holding up their end of the bargain, it's really easy to have that kind of leak out in our tone. This, Even when we really think we're being careful, to have that moment of, hey, I would like it if you did X, to come out a little bit more, hey, I would like it if you did X. And so it's going to be really important to sort of bring that in in order to continue operating from our own framework and continuing to kind of track our own behavior on our yeah, side of the street.
1: Totally true. So one thing about you, you may not notice because you're, you're the fish that doesn't realize it's wet mm. is that I've seen you many times for us be obviously frustrated about something or irritated about something. Mm-hmm. And yet how you conduct yourself uh, with me <laughs> With other family members, sure. and I've seen you do this with other people, mm. is almost always very well regulated. You're not phony. I mean, you choose your words carefully. Sure, there's a little heat behind them, and uh, but it's it's not horrible. And and really rapidly, you you move to a soft landing. There's a little back and forth, bing, 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 and then. I don't. I'm just kind of amazed often, actually, mm. watching you do that mm-hmm what's your secret
0: well i think there are probably two layers to it um the first one is that it's not that i don't experience irritation right it's that a lot of the a lot of this again kind of gets into material that we're going to explore more probably in other episodes but i think that for me a lot of it is a little bit of a a calculus on the value of expressing my irritation in a given moment, Mm -hmm. honestly, where I don't necessarily feel better, because I make somebody else feel worse. Mm -hmm. And often, if I come at something from that stance of irritation, then it just prolongs that irritating experience. Mm -hmm. So the fastest way to kind of get out of the frying pan Mm -hmm. and run away from the fire altogether Uh. is to kind of just tap out a little bit. If I've decided in a moment in interaction that I'm, I'm too irritated to speak from the heart with somebody else, or I'm too, then often the fastest way to do that is to kind of just like nod your head and be like, all right, this is just not going to happen right now. And we can engage this material at some Mm -hmm. later date when we're all a little bit, a little bit more clear in the air. Um, so that's sort of part one, is that's kind of primatic. Uh, part two is just understanding that often when I wake up in the morning, I'm going to feel fine. Huh. Which is sort of a weird thing to say, maybe, on a certain yeah. level. Huh. But time heals a lot of wounds. Yeah, And realizing that, not to get all meta here, but my experience is very temporary. Mm. And will transform into another experience sooner rather than later. I think really helps kind of view things with a little bit of a leveler head. Yeah. So those are two things that help me in that kind of expression of of calm um, and care with somebody else when I feel like I've been in an irritating interaction. That's great. That's deep. As one other small thing, kind of an interpersonal element, I think that forgiving other people their communication lapses is a huge part of interacting effectively with other people. And here's kind of what I mean by that. No one's batting a thousand here. Mm. We live inside our own minds. So whatever we say to us is deeply true and right, because we live inside of our own mind. And we wouldn't be saying it if we didn't think it was deeply true and right, right? So to us, we might be batting a thousand. And we hold other people to that inside-our-own-mind standard of being right all the time. But the reality is that we all have foibles, we all have bad moments with others, all of that good material. And I think that it's important to kind of recognize that even when somebody else is being challenging, even when somebody says something that we don't like, I try to give people passes a lot, um, as much as reasonably possible. And of course, there's some things that are unpassable, and you need to have that good consciousness of the moment when like, this shall not pass to a certain extent, and you need to really kind of reevaluate your relationship. But right up until that moment, I tend to assume that other people are operating from good faith. Hmm. And more often than not. That assumption has served me well in my relationships with other people.
1: That's great. That's humbling, actually to <laughs> It's interesting really, to this go well. like what's the hit rate or the accuracy rate yeah. uh, uh, that I am appraising other people as having on average? So if I think mm, other people mm-hmm. are right 90 percent of the time, eighty percent of the time, let's sure. say you know on average? Why do I think my hit rate is better than their average hit rate? Yeah, really, and maybe you think, with some justification, perhaps at least a little bit mm-hmm. that well, okay, I I work harder at this, or I'm I've had training that helps me see the world in myself and others more accurately. To some example, blah, blah, blah. but still, on the whole, your own accuracy rate of uh, is probably pretty close to the population average. Mm -hmm. And if it's going to be significantly above or below, there need to be some real causes for that. So it's really kind of humbling to have a notion that, whoa, what a thought. I could be as wrong inside my own mind as I think you people are. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's super true that there are all (laughs) of these studies, particularly
0: around skills, things like driving, where Something, I forget what the number was exactly. It was something like 80 or 90% of people believe that they're an above average driver. Yeah. And you look at the math behind that one and it breaks down pretty rapidly. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. So, it's, like, it's
1: like the whole line about uh, Garrison mm-hmm. wobug Lake Wobegon all our children are above average. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. And that's, you know, that's natural. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just the nature of our consciousness coming from one stream instead mm-hmm. of all the streams around us simultaneously. Yeah. But I do think that it's really important, particularly in this discussion of unilateral virtue, to be sort of aware of that and um, kind of take a bow in its general direction.
1: Yeah, that's great. Well, a last thought here. Where unilateral virtue really shows up is in the moment-to-moment back and forth of an interaction with another person, Mm. especially in a heated interaction. And as we've said before, a way to think of these interactions as like volleys and ping pong or tennis, some kind of back and forth. So they communicate something and it's this messy package. And in that moment, what do you do? Do you let yourself be controlled by what's in that package that they heaved over the net? Do you feel like you, what they're communicating to you is making you react in a certain way? so that you are locating cause or control outside yourself and in that other person. In all these cases, you are then at the effect of them. And what unilateral virtue is, especially the unilateral part of it, is to take a moment, which could be literally no longer than one or two or three seconds, to examine uh, the package of crud, to sail over the net your way, examine your own range of possible responses to it, and then unilaterally choose the one that is the most virtuous right then and there on the spot. And there will be a range. Sometimes uh, the most virtuous thing is, is just to stay quiet and engage in noble silence, it could be called. Mm-hmm. Uh, other times you will smile politely and walk away. Uh, sometimes you will let yourself be sort of heated and firm in what you have to say. But it all has to do with your unilateral uh, autonomous choice as to what would be your wisest, most virtuous option, given the range of authentic possibilities.
0: Mm. Mm -hmm.
1: And that moment, I think, is so critically important. Mm -hmm. And it will blow the mind often of other people, where they're really crummy, nasty, stupid, uh, over the top, and you maintain your own dignity, you maintain your own ground, while communicating uh, in a responsible and clear and, uh, ethical way. And that is a very powerful communication itself to other people and tends to settle them down. It's not perfect, but it's a good best odd strategy. Uh, and over time with repetition, this is your best odd strategy for gradually eliciting good treatment from other people. And if you don't get that, well, you have re- you will have really placed yourself on the high moral ground. All right. I think that's
0: a great note to conclude today's episode on.
1: So today's episode was focused
0: on unilateral virtue. We began by defining unilateral virtue as basically cleaning up your side of the street, regardless of somebody else's behavior on theirs. Of course, as we said very early on, there's a time limit to this. You're not going to continue to express unilateral virtue with somebody who continuously steps on you over time. And if you feel that you're in a relationship where somebody else is consistently exploiting your sense of unilateral virtue, then it makes sense to scale that relationship to the size of its reliable foundation, whether that be by minimizing your interactions with that person or exiting it potentially altogether. We talked about some of the benefits that unilateral virtue can bring to your relationships as a whole. You then spoke for a little while on what somebody can do if they feel like they're in a relationship where they're being used as a doormat by somebody else where that mutual sense of virtue is not being respected by both parties. We then moved into the more practical elements of this, deciding what your code is. How can you go about choosing something that makes sense to you? Some basic practices for that, including writing it down, or otherwise go through going through a process of identifying what really matters to you. Then finally, we closed with tactics you can use inside a interaction, or more broadly, to come back to that sense of unilateral virtue when you feel like you're starting to fall off the wagon a little bit. So we hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did so, we'd appreciate it if you would leave a rating and subscribe to the podcast through the platform of your choice. It helps other people find it, and we really do appreciate it. We hope you'll join us again next week when we conclude The Strength of Intimacy with a special episode focused on managing and coming to peace with the natural undependability found in our relationships with other people. Until then, thanks for listening.